You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, April 7, 2022. We are here live in Bitcoin Miami, uh, Bitcoin 2022 conference, I should say. Uh, if I could turn the camera around, you can see we're literally right in the middle of the hallway here. Uh, I'm Ash Bennington, uh, joined by Darius Dale. Darius, welcome. Ash, this is the this is the 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 the, the Real Vision Daily Briefing version of the Oklahoma drill. You're kind of right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the run and gun version, man. It, it's, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. So Darius, man, I am down here in Miami. I am literally eyebrow deep in all things Bitcoin. You have to be my macro and capital market Sherpa, man. Tell me what's going on. Obviously, interesting stuff coming out of the Fed minutes. What's on your dashboard right now? Oh, what's on my dashboard? I mean, they did it again, the Fed. Um, you know, so every time the Fed needs to make a incrementally hawkish pivot or actually you can say incrementally dovish pivot as well going back to 2019 may of 2019 they pushed jim buller out of the door and have him say something that's pretty aggressive um in either direction and and yeah. so the, the latest uh, update from him today is was this, that he thinks coordinated uh, oh yeah definitely i mean i don't think they i don't think these guys i mean obviously the, each of the state uh, the fed president uh you know the fed presidents have some leeway of what they say and what they believe but ultimately, I do believe he's right. acting as an institution, and clearly Bullard's commentary has led the sort of sea change in Fed policy over the past kind of four to six months. Uh, so his comments today are pretty aggressive. I mean, let me, let's me let unpack it. He thinks yeah. that he, he wants to see a Fed funds rate at 3.5% by year end. That compares to yeah. the dot plot we just got a couple of weeks ago um, for 1.875%. So that's nearly a double in terms of what they're expecting. And oh, by the way, this is before we get March CPI next Tuesday, that's probably going to surprise to the upside and continue accelerating. So that's obviously a pretty interesting commentary. Um, well, the reason I think it's most interesting is because Bullard also followed that up by saying, hey, the Fed can do this because the labor market is so robust and will likely continue improving throughout that entire process. So these guys are really gung-ho about the sort of coincident to lagging nature of the strength of the economy and really kind of having blinders on, blinders on with respect to uh, the forward-looking outlook. But Darius, let me play devil's advocate here. We just got our first rate cut, and now we're talking about getting to three and a half by the end of the year. Is there any way that that actually happens? No, no, definitely not. And, and the reason I say definitely not, um, you go to look in our work here at 42 Macro, our models are projecting a sort of faster pace of deceleration um, starting in the kind of mid to late Q2, right. late Q2 rather. And so by the time we get into the summer months and into the fall, the economy will be very, not only just visibly slowing, but visibly slowing at a pretty sharp pace. The kind of pace that right. causes crashes in stock markets, crashes in cryptocurrency, crashes in risk assets broadly. And ultimately right. we think tightening of financial conditions associated with that will eventually cause the Fed to back off, but we certainly know we're near the kinds of levels of pain that we need to see for that to occur. But isn't this exactly the challenge that you see with tightening in terms of getting behind the curve uh, when you're tightening into a recessionary cycle already? Isn't that sort of the, the, the sort of uh, reconcilable double bind that we're in here? Yeah, so the Fed's policy mistake didn't start recently. It started, you know, you can make the case that it started over a year ago 
when the uh the when the, uh, the when the fiscal authority passed that sort of last uh fiscal package the fiscal stimulus package the very ill-advised uh fiscal stimulus the final COVID relief bill you know pumping an additional couple trillion dollars into the economy at that point in time the fed should start to remove monetary accommodation because they ultimately understand that monetary policy works on quote unquote long and variable lags um, we are now in a very precarious place. If you pull up the chart, uh, I have a chart there, U3 versus Fed funds rate. Um, and the key takeaway from this chart, so what I'm showing in that chart is the uh, unemployment rate, the blue line, the red line shows the Fed funds rate, the black dotted lines denote each of the, 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 the commencement of each tightening cycle we have going back as far as we can get the data. This is as low as the unemployment rate has ever been at the start of a policy tightening cycle. And so the key takeaway from that chart is that it's very, unlikely that we see a soft landing and the reason i say that is the last one the feds only engineered two soft landings you know sort of in terms of the uh in terms of how far back this data goes one was in 1984 the other was in 1994 and if you look at where the unemployment rate was in those uh, in the beginning of those tightening cycles it was north of 10 percent in the former instance and it was north of six and a half percent in the latter instance there was room for the economy to continue improving there is no room for the economy to continue improving from a labor market perspective with the 3.6% unemployment rate. So that's obviously an issue as it relates to policy. Yeah, this is really a key point, Terrence. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, they're in a really awkward spot. And unfortunately, um, it seems as if just leading the tea leaves from Powell, reading the tea leaves from Mary Daly from all people, it strikes me that if you put a gun to their head, and obviously they would prefer a soft landing, they're, they're not trying to get a recession, but it strikes me that, you know, if you just read the tea leaves the last couple of weeks, they would actually probably prefer a recession that kills inflation as opposed to a non-recession that, that keeps the current inflation regime intact. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Oh, they were all damned. Let's be clear. We're making a call in this in this in this program. Hey, I think this S and P five hundred has a the Fed put zone in our calculation, and we come with we arrive at this through various you know all types of measures and, and, and tools. Uh, the Fed put target rate zone is somewhere between thirty two hundred on the S and P and thirty four hundred on the S. That's really really low relative to the last price. Now the problem with you know sort of getting there in the near term is that you know you can still continue to have very positive fundamentals coming out of the economy. Obviously, we have the ISM services data last uh, couple of days ago. You know, very much on gangbusters on a lagging basis. Look at sort of um, you know kind of the pace of growth in the economy. Obviously, last week we got the job support. This economy is growing very robustly at the current juncture. So until you start to see that that pace of deceleration really start to pick up. It's very unlikely you see that pocket of downside risk open up, but I think that what we're in this, we're, we're sort of, we've been in this window where there's been not enough bad stuff happening to cause that type of market decline. I think the window might be closing here just as a function of, of um, you know, the Fed commentary, because it's what it's doing, it's pulling forward that negative adverse outcome from an economic perspective. Yeah. By the way, we've been talking about rates here, but we haven't yet touched on the balance sheet. Another important point from the minutes, $95 billion, uh, per month in runoff uh, shrinkage. Give us your sense, the context and the importance of the diminishing balance sheet of the Fed. Yeah. So it depends on what the economic environment is. And so look, let me take a step back. Um, you know, uh, if you put up that chart, uh, grid asset market back test stocks, this is uh, where we uh, slice and dice the sort of return profile, the S&P through volatility, covariance, percent positive ratios, et cetera returns and let's focus on the annualized returns. So quantitative tightening obviously is not good 
the stock market, not good for risk assets. But it's not necessarily always bad. When you're in what we call Goldilocks inflation, that's where growth is accelerating in both of those instances, you tend to have an annual average annualized return in the S&P of plus 21%. That's very positive. The market doesn't give a damn about quantitative tightening when growth is accelerating. The problem is when, you, when growth is decelerating, you have an average annualized um, decline or decline in the stock market of minus 14%. So that's a massive swing in terms of the return profile for the stock market. And obviously we're extending that to broader risk assets when you're talking about quantitative tightening. And so that's a problem, but when you layer on the fact that we're going to have a sharper deceleration in growth ahead of us, you know, to me, I think that's the bigger story in markets because quantitative tightening, Fed policy rate hikes, that stuff's kind of priced in and certainly a no-known at this juncture. What is not a no-known is ultimately the pace and destination with respect to the growth outlook. Right now, we're sort of decelerating at what we call, in terms of how our quantification is calculated, in a, minor, in a zero sigma growth environment. Typically, that's a positive environment for stocks, very narrowly positive. When you shift to a minus one sigma growth environment, that's a minus 6% annualized return. When you get to a yeah. minus two sigma growth deceleration, which is where we're headed in the kind of three or four months time, that's a minus 30% annualized decline in the stock. So we're, we're headed for some trouble. Yeah, and that really does tie it together quite nicely uh, on the on the balance sheet uh, versus the uh, Fed funds rate component. I think we're switching cameras here. Apologies for the uh, for the shifts here. We're oh, live, told you, man. It's Oklahoma drill, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Where anything can and will go wrong. That's what makes it fun. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, but listen, that, that $95 billion is just the plan. I assume that that's probably also subject to economic conditions as well. Uh, but I'm curious to think on the balance sheet uh, side of the equation, what happens if we begin to see uh, if we begin to see a significant deceleration of economic growth? Uh, does the Fed make the same choice with the balance sheet uh, per your earlier remarks that you think that they make with interest rates, uh, which is to prefer a recessionary uh, a recession to a, I don't know if you guys can hear that, but there's a phone ring in here, um, but also uh, a recession basically to interest rates. Yeah, so it's very unlikely. So in terms of how our math and in terms of projecting growth and inflation in the economy, it's unlikely we see that sort of growth get to a below trend state soon enough. And this is this has always been the problem and, and sort of core to our thesis walking into the year here. There's the Fed has sort of three kind of mandates, if you will. There's the growth mandate, you know, they call it labor market, but really what they mean is growth. There's the inflation mandate, obviously. And then there's the financial conditions mandate, making sure that the plumbing of the financial system works. The problem with where the Fed is today as it relates to the outlook for growth and the outlook for inflation is that neither of those things will do will change in a way or soon enough to start, get the Fed off of its policy tightening pivot. It's only the only sort of um, the, the only stool of that three-legged stool that will give the Fed feedback to stop doing what it's doing soon enough are financial conditions because growth is still at a very robust level. We're not going to get to a below-trend level until towards the end of the year, Q4, Q1 of next year. You know, in terms of heading towards recession. Inflation is likely to be very elevated throughout this entire projection period if you look at it on a one-year, one-month, or one-year and two-year forward basis. And so the only thing that can get the Fed from its you know, very aggressive policy tightening path 
our financial conditions, financial markets. And so that's that's what that's been our core view is that the markets have to tell the Fed to stop at some point. And the markets will tell the Fed to stop at some point. We just have to think that's probably a you know Q3, Q4 event. Hey Darius, what does that tripwire look like in your outlook? Say what? <laughs> what does that tripwire look like from financial markets in your outlook for Q3 is your projection goes? Yeah, so there's there's a number of catalysts that can sort of get you there, right? Uh, obviously just macroeconomic data slowing at a, at a more expeditious pace, you know, the investors getting starting to get incrementally concerned. Because right now, you know, there's two schools of camp, right? There's the nominal GDP camp, it's great, it's gonna flow through the earnings, ignore all the noise, and that's a reasonable view to take at this particular juncture. We don't think it'll be a very reasonable view to take, you know, six months from now. Um, but for now, that view is is, is, is is fine. But then in terms of the tripwire from a bottom-up micro right. standpoint, you know, you get into Q2 earnings season, I'm not at all concerned about Q1 earnings season, growth is extremely robust. In fact, companies are not really uh, sort of uh, incentivized at this point in the process to guide down materially. So Q1 earnings season should probably be really fine, really good. Um, when you get the Q2 earnings season, though, as I mentioned, you know, our growth models start to slow down kind of in the latter part of Q2. So it's very likely that companies will start to see some of that pain in their in their in their P&Ls. And they may start to broadly guide down towards a towards a negative uh, outcome in the back half of the year and into 2023. So that to me could be a tripwire. Obviously, the cadence of the macroeconomic data could be a tripwire as well. Yeah. By the way, talking of, of pain in the Fed, let's take a look at a clip. Uh, this is from uh, today's show on uh, the pro plus and essential tiers. This is an interview with Luke Groman, who has some interesting remarks uh, about the Fed. Let's take a look at the clip. The Fed is either going to have to let rates find their level um, where organic private demand can satisfy that, or uh, they're going to have to come back with QE to finance the government some more. And the challenge is, is that in 08, they had more leeway because debt to GDP was only, I don't know, 80, 85, 90%. Maybe it was 100% after 08. We're at 130% now. And we have Treasury spending, um, my, my measure of uh, true interest expense, Treasury spending plus entitlement paygoes are at 100% of tax receipts, which are running at all-time highs, inflated by 12% GDP growth and 8% CPI. And you're still not covering this. And so to me, this is this really interesting context uh, that I mentioned before that's not in the chart is you're seeing the economy weaken across any number of metrics and long dated treasuries are really not bid. They're, they're not being bid. Yields are still rising. And I think it ultimately speaks to this chart. And I think it speaks to that initial point I made that we're rapidly approaching a point where I think the Fed is going to have to uh, basically begin re-injecting new liquidity into an inflation spike. Darius, there it is. Luke Groman on the Fed. What are your thoughts there? I know that you've been following Luke's commentary here closely. Oh, Luke's fantastic. Yeah, big, big fan of Luke. I mean, he, he I think he had the comment of the year, to be, to be quite frank. I laughed out loud when I saw it. But in, in that interview, you mentioned uh, the Fed is trying to ride two horses with one ass, which is effectively what they're trying to do. You know, you, you can't. And, and this and it strikes me as, um, you know, that the Fed has finally realized this in the last sort of couple of weeks, certainly uh, by the uh, March FOMC meeting. And then obviously with the commentary we've seen since then, the Fed wanted to have its cake and eat it, too. The Fed wanted to tighten so that inflation could come down, but they didn't want to right. tighten financial conditions and slow the economy. We can see that as a function of their preposterous forecast from the, from the SCP. Right. They're talking about getting it cut inflation in half twice over the next two years. 
but not having any adverse impact on the labor market. Everybody besides the Fed understands how preposterous that is. So you know, we're all kind of laughing at the Fed and obviously loose comment uh, really kind of you know puts a, a Tiffany bow on that. Isn't that like the best explanation for a non-technical example of what's happening with the Fed and the bind that they find themselves in? Look, I have five pages of numbers I'm staring at in front of me uh, to, to prep me for these shows. I can't possibly summarize it better than that. Riding, riding two horses with one ass is effectively where we are uh, from a global macroeconomic standpoint. Luke, if you're watching, we should get a t-shirt made up. They'd sell like hotcakes. <laughs> Real Vision branded, it'll be great merch. Let's do it. Two, two horses, one ass. <laughs> hey, Darius, let's jump in and hit some of these questions. They're coming in fast and thick. Uh, first let's one comes to us from the Real Vision site uh, from Bo Nito. And the question is, Darius, we still have huge market cap to GDP ratios and haven't seen much in terms of adjustments and revisions to forward earnings. We've seen melt-ups before, but are we close to the point where the heat causes a core meltdown? Well, that's ominous. Yeah, no, look, look, we're again, I, I keep banging the, the drum on the same analyses, but you know, one of our going back to that 30, 3,200, 3,400, you know, kind of target rate zone for the SP, one of the core analyses that are sort of underpinning that that view is our analysis evaluation. When you look at the SP 500's real earnings yield, that's the earnings divided by the price minus headline CPI. Uh, that's at an all-time low right now, and, and historically, whenever you've gone negative in that metric, there have been six inversions since the early 1960s, the median, median S&P 500 drawdown is minus 41% from those negative uh, inversions. That's a big deal. That's a very yeah. big deal. And so, you know, obviously, it's the most inverted it's ever been. If that's the median, I can't imagine what the left end of that tail looks like. <laughs> oh, it's pretty bad. It's minus 60%. Wow, that's that's pretty ugly. Uh, here's another question that comes to us from John Kitcher. This is from the Real Vision site. Hi, Darius. Can you talk about expected drop in CapEx from Europe? I'm assuming with geopolitical issues in Europe, companies are going to drop spending. So this is a question about capital expenditure uh, in Europe. What are your thoughts there, Darius? Yeah, so it's it's uh, you could have a scenario where CapEx from a private sector standpoint declines. And in fact, we're already kind of starting to see the early signs of that. If you look at leading indicators in Europe, you know, from a from a uh, business confidence standpoint, the manufacturing PMI, uh, you know, kind of slowed as well um, in a month where pretty much, you know, most economies are doing pretty, pretty quite good last month. The the issue with, you know, kind of forecasting a negative CapEx cycle in Europe is the is the fiscal response. That we're likely to see as a function of the twin you know, energy crises over in Europe, and obviously of the defense crisis in terms of companies finally, or not companies, countries finally starting to take up their kind of defense spending as associated with NATO. And so Europe is on the precipice, in our opinion, of a pretty major fiscal initiative. Um, whether or not that fiscal initiative comes before or after the recession, uh, they typically come after the recession starts, or at least after the market crash. Um, you know, this is kind of um, you know, that's 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 a difficult question to answer at this particular juncture. Yeah. Uh, here's another one that comes to us from uh, Sean Laka. It's a long one. I'm going to read it here. Question for Darius. How do we make sense of the different directions and rate of change PMIs between ISM and market for the same month? That's a really interesting question. Uh, the two companies often give conflicting readings on the sector slash economy. Really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just depends on the composition. So the reason they have different uh, metrics is they're, they're, the, the composition is a little bit different. That the, the market PMIs, generally speaking, tend to have a larger sample size. So they have a little bit more bias in the PMI data to smaller companies, medium-sized companies than the, you know, kind of the headline PMIs. If you look at China, you look at the ISM. We tend to anchor on the ISM, wanted as a significantly longer time series. It's, you know, it's been proven 
by several organizations, MBER, OECD, as a, as a, as a really good leading indicator for the economy uh, in terms of leading the coincident indicator of the economy. And one uh, thing I think is important to call out in the most recent ISM manufacturing data, um, you look at the sort of relationship between new orders and inventories, and that finally broke into negative territory. The reason that's important is because, you know, going on as far back as we can get the data from late 1940s, that tends to be a harbinger for recession. Now, there have obviously been false positives in that in that time series, but generally speaking, you're talking about a over two thirds percentage chance of you know, realizing recession over the next you know, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's uh, one final question that's coming in, and it's about currencies. It comes to us from um, Ralph Humphrey from the Real Vision website. And the question is, what currencies look good to Darius in the short to medium term? Yeah, dollar and gold, to be honest. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this is a kind of environment when you look at where we are from a grid perspective. Um, we're currently in inflation from, you know, when inflation means growth slowing and inflation's accelerating, we're transitioning to deflation. Both of those regimes tend to be quite favorable for the dollar. Obviously, when you layer on Fed policy tightening and things of that nature, a potential kind of crash and risk assets, all those things are adding fuel to the fire to the dollar. Um, you know, certainly relative to an ECB that is, you know, reluctant to get as aggressive as the, as, of, as the Fed and a BLJ that's obviously out the lunch as it relates to its, its, its uh, yield curve control. So uh, we're, we've been dollar bulls for a long time and we will remain dollar bulls until I think we get to the other side of the cycle. Yeah, here's a pivot point for you. Talking about crypto, or talking about currencies, I should say. I want to talk about cryptocurrencies. I heard you talking, Darius, at the beginning of this broadcast when we were off camera in a way that I've never heard you talking before. You sounded full-on crypto guy. Tell us a little bit about your outlook right now in the crypto space. Obviously, we're here in Bitcoin uh, 2022 in Miami. It's a very topical conversation. What are your views? What are your outlook for Bitcoin and other cryptos? Yeah, so I'll start by saying, you know, Bitcoin and, and other cryptos are going to get eviscerated as the stock market goes down 30%. So let me be very clear about that. That's this is a tactical. That's the medium term view. I think, however, what you and I were discussing, the well, longer let's term. Let's hang with that view, for a second because that's a really yeah. interesting call. So you're saying uh, 30 percent decline, 30 uh, percent retrenchment on the stock market. You see a significant hit uh, on cryptocurrency valuations. What's the beta on that? Does it go down more? Does it go down less? What's your thought about the correlation between those two? Uh, and is it being driven ultimately by the Fed? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of uh, the minus two sigma delta growth back test, that just means in, in layman's terms that the speed of the change, the speed of the deceleration and growth is a on an absolute basis is a minus two sigma relative to the trailing three year sample in terms of how we construct our back test. And so that's a minus 30% annualized return for the S&P 500. For Bitcoin, that's a minus 64% annualized return. And so obviously it's a beta of over two, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of what we should probably see in digital assets. Now, I'm backing up the truck personally, just personally on crypto. If we see 28,000 on crypto, because that'd be the 61.8% uh, Fibonacci retracement level, you know, from the most recent bull run. I, I don't think it's probably- Bitcoin right now. Yeah, we're talking Bitcoin here. Ethereum, yeah. that number is around 1,900. Um, if we see those numbers in this in this market event, I mean, you know, you, you, you'd you be a fool not to put a, a decent chunk of your wealth in, in this space. Because if you talk about the long-term 
bull case for crypto. Everything that everyone in that community, everyone in that investment sphere has been sort of talking about, you know, bandying about and really kind of banging the table on for the past 10, 12 years, it's all happened at an accelerating rate in 2022. I mean, the 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 the, 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 the confiscation of Russian reserves, the 40 year highs in inflation, all time highs in inflation in Europe There's so much stuff, you know, the, the this, what happened with the Canadian truckers and everything, all the stuff that's, you know, you know, I don't you don't need me to list those things. But to me, there's sort of the, 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 the need to remove yourself, at least some portion of your wealth from a fiat monetary system and over into digital asset space or some maybe it doesn't have to be crypto. I'm just obviously crypto is the most obvious vehicle from that perspective. You, you, the, the bull case has never been more cl clear and cogent for people who aren't even inclined to be bullish on cryptocurrency. Darius, you said you don't need me to list them, but I'm enjoying hearing you listen. This is a side of you I've never heard before. No, it's it's terrifying, man. It, it really is scary to see sort of, you know, kind of the overreach. The, and, and more importantly, not just the overreach from the, the government and, and, and monetary and fiscal authorities, but the sort of kind of celebrated overreach, if you will. You're almost kind of like a bad guy if you don't sort of chastise Russia, and obviously Russia's, a, they're committing horrible atrocities and they need to be punished. But in terms of like the sort of academic communities, you know, we listen to, you know, I listen to a lot of, you know, very thoughtful, you know, academics and stuff, talk about this stuff. They're very comfortable with this stuff. And it, it, it that terrifies me as, a, as an individual, as a human being who believes in liberty. When you say this stuff, what are you referring to specifically? Well, just just the, you know the the, the the you know the the, the, the removal of Russia, basically kicking Russia out of the global dollar system and weaponizing the global dollar system as a vehicle to sort of force you know the you know compliance. Like, to me, that that is, I mean, they've always had the ability to do that, uh, but to me, the sort of celebration of it is what what strikes me as odd and strikes me as kind of dangerous because I would have thought we'd see more of an upheaval and much more of a revolt. But what's happened is is a lot of you know a lot of you know kind of traditional academic economists and people in traditional finance have really kind of celebrated it to be honest with you. Yeah. By the way, we should say Bitcoin right now trading at forty three thousand four hundred and twenty eight, uh, and Ethereum uh, at three thousand two hundred and twenty four. You know, it really is an interesting sort of framework that you lay out there, Darius. You know, one of the things that struck me as you were talking uh, is a lot of people who are in this space, the people who are really most passionate uh, about Bitcoin and digital assets, uh, often talk, especially people who are on the Bitcoin side of the equation. They often talk about this this reversal uh, in correlation between uh, U.S. dollar assets, particularly U.S. equities. Uh, and Bitcoin itself. In other words, in their view, Bitcoin becomes an off-the-grid store of value. It's something that should rise uh, as stocks decline. Is that something that you ever see happening, or is it just too soon to say at this stage of the ballgame? No, I, I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. And the reason I doubt that is because part of the bull case for digital assets is the further adoption into institutional finance and further adoption by you know regular retail investors. Regular retail investors and institutional finance people are constrained by their overall portfolio and their overall allocations and their overall risk budget. If you start to see rapid declines in the stock market and et cetera, et cetera, what happens when you see have another asset and you need liquidity, you have an asset that hasn't gone down yet, well, guess what? You sell it. It's a great lesson of the financial crisis, the lesson of the underlying of the tech bubble. And so these behavioral dynamics, in my opinion, are what, are what is very likely to keep you know, the digital asset space, unfortunately, you know, positively correlated to the market, although that correlation can dissipate over time. It's just very unlikely to dissipate um, in a market event. It's more likely to actually try to get, get, get stronger, to be honest with you.
Yeah, sorry guys, we're switching cameras here. I think we're back on the laptop camera. Hopefully you can see me well. Um, Darius, obviously this has been a great conversation. Couldn't think of a better guest to have here uh, to talk about everything that's happened in the Fed and now uh, to have you talk about the digital asset stuff. Great conversation. As Thank we you, come man. to the conclusion of this talk, final thoughts, key takeaways. Obviously we've covered a lot of ground here today. Yeah, so uh, I'd say key takeaways, uh, you know, I like to do this from a calendar perspective to help investors, you know, across different time horizons and, and different, um, you know, trading uh, processes. You know, from a short-term perspective, you know, we had been in this window um, where, you know, sort of the, the growth outlook was fine, you know, things were, you know, from a corporate earnings standpoint, still improving. And so you really didn't necessarily need to sell and raise cash and raise liquidity. It may be the case, and I, I still think it's too early to determine that, it may be the case that Fed commentary and the forward guidance out of the Fed, that function is compressing that window of time and pulling forward the window of time, the medium-term window of time, where, oh, by, oh, no, we actually are having an economic slowdown. We don't know what the ultimate destination of the slowdown, but we can feel the pace really starting to pick up in a way that kind of spooks markets. Um, that, again, in our opinion, was always going to be something that was sort of confined to like late Q2 throughout Q3 and Q4. If they pull, if it could be the fake case that they're pulling that forward. And then we're certainly um, trying to assess that in real time. Yeah, Darius, final question. I love it down here. How long does it take me to get adjusted to the heat, man? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm the big guy. I'm 6'4", 285 pounds. I'll never get adjusted to the heat, so I can't help you. <laughs> Actually, new final question. Why do people have dinner outside in Miami? It's sweltering. I don't understand. I, I don't get it either, man. But uh, I'll see you later, man. I'll see you this weekend. See you this weekend. Thanks for watching, everybody. Cheers, brother. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.